0: Go ahead and subscribe, and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in, and be blessed.
1: And I'm going to share something that I've just been kind of sitting on and meditating on for the last couple weeks, actually before uh, the virus and everything else kind of happened. Um, one of the things that kind of came up was Psalm 91. In fact, in our church, we were talking about tongues last week at the very end of the service. And I actually wanted to share that this week, but in light of everything that's been going on, um, just the chaos, um, the sheer and utter chaos of everything that's going on. And then at the same time, the widespread panic and fear of the unknown, all those things combined, you just kind of look at life and you look at the world and you realize we're in worse shape than we thought we were. Um, But regardless, at the end of the day, uh, I think it's important for us as believers, um, as Christians, but more so as believers, um, to believe what God's heart is for us. And I think in the church, one of the most common things that we talk about a lot is the love of God. But when it comes to the love of God topic, again, it can almost be talked about so much that it feels like it's watered down. So we wanted to take some time this morning, or actually take some time this morning, really just to talk about the heart of God and really kind of reemphasize why it is vitally important that you understand what God's heart is for you. In fact, just last night I was on Facebook scrolling and a friend of mine had posted something about the blood of Jesus setting you free from every sickness and disease. And you know, I just kind of liked it real fast. And I noticed he had about 25 comments under that. And So I kind of browsed through his comment section and I noticed he was getting a lot of negative feedback from people. Um, and keep in mind, yes, there is a virus in the world. And people started jumping on his page saying X, Y, and Z. I'm not going to get into it because I don't want to call anyone out First se, on our church Facebook page. But the reason why I'm telling you that is this. They got on and pretty much bashing everything that my friend was saying about the blood of Jesus and what we believe. And it dawned on me that people just don't know what God's heart is. That's my I, I believe it. I believe most people don't know what God's heart is. And if you understood God's heart and you understood our situation, I think it would make a little more sense. So this morning, I'm not preaching to that person or that individual or what happened, but again, it was something that's been weighing on me for a while, and I wanted to share it. So that said, uh, let's open up and let's pray. So let's do that first. Let's pray, and then we'll jump right into it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time that we have together. Even though we are not together uh, in person, face to face, I thank you that there is no distance in the anointing. So Lord, I thank you that whatever anyone needs to hear this morning, I thank you that they won't hear me, that they'll hear you. And whatever I prepared, Father, I thank you that it fails in comparison to what you would have for them. So, Lord, I ask that everyone who's joined in on this or whoever hears it, even after this session is over, Father, that you would speak directly to them and give them exactly what they need so they would hear exactly what they need to hear um, they would receive from you. Because at the end of the day, no one came here to see me. No one came to receive from me. We all came to see you and receive from you. So, Jesus, I thank you that, again, there is no distance in your anointing or in your presence. And I thank you, Lord, that you are moving for whoever needs you to move, even right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Cool. Uh, so let's start again. I was talking about, I think it's vitally important that we understand God's heart. Um, especially in today's day and age, we need to know what God's heart is. So I'm going to take a few minutes. I do have a lot to share, but I hope I'm do my best not to go extremely long. If this was a Sunday morning, I'd tell everyone to go ahead and Um, buckle up and get ready for the next three or four hours. But don't worry, I won't do that on here. I don't think my camera will last that long anyways. So let's go ahead and dive in. If you have your Bible, you can turn to, um, I want to say you can turn to Romans chapter five. I'm actually going to start in third John chapter, third John verse two. Uh, But either one, I'm going to start in third John two, and I'm going to go to Romans chapter five. Now in third John, there's only one chapter, so there's no need for chapters, verse, it's just only verses. Um, and in Third John, what you're getting is a letter from the Apostle John, who's known as the Apostle of Love. Um, he wrote more about the love of God than all the other apostles. Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, one of my favorites, Paul, uh, he writes about the love of God, but he he shares other topics with that one main topic. When it comes to John, almost 90% of what John talks about is about the love of God. So he's known about, he's known as the apostle of love. Anyways, when you look at 3 John 2, you're getting a glimpse at John's heart for the people, but you're getting a glimpse of God's heart for his people as well. In 3 John verse two, John says this, Beloved, he says, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers. Now, verse three and verse four, we'll share that some other time. But verse three and verse four actually give you what I believe is the key to soul prosperity. But we're not going to dive into that on this particular session. I want you to focus on verse two one more time. He says this, I pray that you may prosper in all things. When you see that phrase that you would prosper in all things, even as your soul prospers, what he's saying is this, I want you to prosper materially and be in health physically, even as your soul spiritually prospers. Now, when you talk about soul prosperity, you're talking about your mind, your will, your emotions. That's your, that's that soulless part of you. But he's saying, to the degree that your soul prospers, you will prosper physically, and you will prosper. uh, Sorry, you'll prosper materially and physically. Now, again, for the believer, one of the biggest problems in the church is people. Well, you know, this preacher. People say, you know, this guy's a prosperity guy. All he wants to talk about is money, money, money. I agree that there are some. Uh, radicals on in, in, in every group, in every organization, there are radicals that push something to the furthest extent than they need it needed to go. But believe this, it is God's will for you to prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. The trick is this, you can chase money, you can chase uh eternal life through whatever, you know, trying to live forever, trying to do lotions and whatever i mean the whole thing you get my i'm not going to get into all that but my point is this you can pursue all those things to try to stay young and try to be young and try to be youthful and and go through plastic surgery after x y and z but my point is this at the end of the day he says you will prosper and be in health to the degree that your soul prospers so god is pretty much saying hey look don't chase those things instead chase this one thing and one thing I love about the gospel is this. God wants to make things simple for his people. He wants to make it simple. The world is chasing 15 things. God says, if you'll just do the one thing, sorry, Jesus said, just do the one thing and everything else will pursue you. So right here, you have a perfect example of that in third John verse two. He's saying, I want you to prosper and I want you to be in health to the degree that your soul prospers. Now, the short answer for soul prosperity is this, and I'm going to give you the, the short answer because we don't have time. This isn't where we're going. The short answer is this. So your soul will prosper to the degree that you know and believe that God loves you. If you're not convinced that God loves you, and I'm talking about unconditional love, if you are not convinced that God loves you, your soul will never prosper. And I mean that. Again, there's verse after verse that I could prove it, but we don't have time to go into that direction right now. Keep in mind, it was the same John who wrote this that actually said this. We have known and believe the love that God has for us. It's not enough to know that God loves us. Do you believe that God loves you? And so for that, again, I wanted to uh, push that narrative and keep going that way. But let's keep going. Look at this in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5. And uh, I will say that there is a a bit of a video lag on this video. I can kind of see it. So I just want to say hey to everyone and thank you for jumping in on this nice, lovely video. Romans chapter 5. And everything we're doing, we'll put on the podcast. We wanted to make sure that we still have something new and something fresh to put on there. And I want to take a moment real quick before we dive into Romans 5. If you haven't checked out the Center Church podcast, we'll put that link here um, at the end of the video or at some point. If somebody's on here and you can, for everyone else, that'd be great. Uh, but you can always go to the Center Church Facebook page. And find the link for our podcast. And there, every Sunday sermon we have, we put on there. When we had Bible studies, we tried to put those on there as well. Um, find the topic that you're needing the Lord to minister to you on and click on it and just listen and enjoy it. Most of our messages go about 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, but the other day, I was in bed. I couldn't go to sleep. I turned on the podcast and uh, I was just. I fell asleep listening to it, but it's just a chance for the Lord to kind of minister to me and remind me that, you know, you don't have to be afraid of everything else. You don't have to worry about certain things in your life. What I told you back then is still true to this day. I am providing and taking care of you. So I want to remind you again, just, or I want to encourage you, go check out the the podcast if you get a chance. But let's pick up in Romans chapter five. We're going to skip down to verse 12 and we're going to read down to verse 17. In Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul says, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. And I'm reading from the New King James. I know it's not a modern translation, but it is my favorite translation. So anyways, one more time, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. And who is that one man? We'll just explain it as we go. That one man is Adam. Before Adam, sin wasn't in the world. Before Adam, sin was a possibility, but it wasn't in the world. But notice, when Adam sinned, Sin entered the world and death came in through sin. Thus, death spread to all men because all sin. Then you come to verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now we talk a lot about law and grace, not being under the law in our church. But again, right now we're not going in that direction. Look at verse 14. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, capital H, who was to come. Now, what he's saying is this. Not everybody sinned the same way Adam did. Yet, because Adam sinned, everyone was made a sinner. Now, it seems like in a lot of ways, it's not fair. But what happens is this. Adam sinned. So because Adam sinned, sin is now in his blood. So because sin is in his blood, everyone who comes after him is born a sinner. They can't change it. It is what it is. And what he's saying is this. Because everyone is now a sinner, all have sinned, even, I'm sorry, all now have sinned, everyone has sinned, whether you do the same thing Adam did or not, it doesn't matter. But Adam was a type or a shadow of the greater him, capital H, who would come later, talking about Jesus. In the same way that Adam sinned and made everyone a sinner, no matter what they did, Jesus would come and everyone who was born through him, now you are the righteousness of God in the same way. Now, keep going. In verse 15, he says, but the free gift is not like the offense. Now watch this, Jesus comes, he gives a free gift, but it's not like the offense in this way. It's not like what Adam did in this way for, or because if by the one man's offense, if by what Adam did, many died much more, the grace of God and the gift. Now the gift and the grace of God are two different. And I'll show you in a second. He said much more by the grace of God, the unearned favor of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. Now what he's saying is if death had this much of an impact on the world, if death had this much of influence into the world, all right, how much, and how look at all, all the damage that death was able to do by Adam's one sin, how much more will Jesus' gift, how much of an impact will it have? So then you come to verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one Adam who sinned. For the judgment, which came from one offense, from Adam's one sin, resulted in condemnation. Now watch this. His one sin resulted in condemnation. That's all it had to do. Death just needed that condemnation to be activated. But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. Now again, these are old English words, but the point he's trying to make is this. Jesus' one gift resulted in everybody being made righteous by God. Everybody being made righteous by God. So then you look at verse 17. Now, verse 17, before we read verse 17, hold on one moment. I said all that to say this. Adam's one sin brought death into the world. It brought sin into the world and it brought death into the world. Adam now, because of his one mistake, caused death to reign supreme. In fact, let's read verse 17. I apologize. It says, for if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace And the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. I haven't read that verse now. When Adam sinned, now death is king. Death reigns supreme. Death is reigning in life, reigning over life. Now, what does it mean? If you look at just this example alone right here, what does it mean when death reigns? Well, death has the final say. You can fight it all you want, but at the end of the day, death reigns supreme. For people without Christ, let me say this. At the end of the day, death is final. That's it. That's it. There's nothing after there's nothing um, you can do to stop it. Once death comes in, it's done. But Jesus comes in and he turns the whole thing. And look at verse 17 one more time. It says, if by the one man's offense, if by Adam's sin, death reigned through Adam, much more, much more, and not just in the same way, but much more. Those who receive an abundance of grace. And the gift of righteousness, you will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. I love it. So what's he trying to say? In the same way that death was final, death was supreme, God wants you to reign in life. Now, I'm saying all that to say this. Again, it is vitally important that you understand God's heart. There is death in the world. There's no mistake about that. The coronavirus is just one of thousands of millions of things that are killing people on a daily basis and i'm not trying to belittle how serious this is but i want you to understand at the end of the day death is supreme for people in the world but god saw what was going on and god wanted to fix it god wanted to change it god's heart for you was that no virus could touch you no plague or no disease could hurt you and i'm going to show you that in psalm 91 in just a few moments but my point is this As bad as the world is getting, as bad as life is getting, at the end of the day, God said, I don't want anyone to reign over you. I don't want any disease to be your final uh, verdict. I don't want any plague to come. I don't want an earthquake, hurricanes, war. I don't want anything to have the final say in your life. I want you to reign in life in the same way, but much more. So again, how does death reign? Well, death had the final say. So Jesus comes in and says, great, I'm going to turn this whole thing around. And if you will receive my gift and receive an abundance of grace, you will reign in the same way and much more than death. Now, again, death had the final say. So what does that mean for us? If you are reigning in life, you have the final say on what happens. In fact, there's a verse uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's a verse in Proverbs. I believe he says this, the power of death, I'm sorry, life and death is in the power of the tongue. I grew up in a word of faith environment, and it's one of those things that, you know, you hear it so much as a kid, it's like, well, you know, but my point is this, the life and death is in the power of the tongue, Old English, again, King James style. My point, at the end of the day, what happened was this, death reigns supreme, so what he does is he takes the power of death, he destroyed Satan, who had the power of death, and we showed you that last Sunday, you can go hear that on the podcast, but he, what he does is he takes the power of death from him, and he gives it to you, and he says, now... The power of life and death is in your mouth. All you have to do is speak life or speak death. But be careful because if you speak death, you'll see it. But if you speak life, you'll see it. So now we have the ability, the ability to speak and see what we want to see. You look at Jesus, for example. Jesus never uh, used his words carelessly. In the same way, I challenge you to go through the Bible and find one place that God made a joke and used his words carelessly. No, because God's words have power. Likewise, Jesus's words have power. And likewise, every believer, your words have power. When you speak, you're doing something. You're making something. You're creating something every time you open your mouth. So you have to be very, very careful what you open your mouth and say. Now, again, I learned that growing up in a Word of Faith church. But one thing that no one ever taught me, and I'm becoming a firm believer, and I'm moving more so to this. There's a lot of things I see believers say that it doesn't happen. There's a lot of things. People say, oh, man, this is killing me, or, oh, man, this is just, uh, you know, stuff like that. You know, you say things like, oh, man, this is killing me, and we know we shouldn't say things like that, having grown up in a word of faith environment. You just don't say certain things like that. But I noticed that a lot of times, some believers who say stuff like that, it's like, well, if the power of life and death is in the tongue, they say stuff, but it doesn't happen. And just over my own personal study time, I'm starting to lean more towards God hasn't given that power to everyone. It's true, but God hasn't given that power to everyone. Take, for example, um, and I've said this in church thousands of times. <laughs> Take, for example, uh, I let's say Parker. Right now, Parker is the heir to everything I own. Let's say tomorrow I'm no longer here. Parker will inherit my car. He will inherit my house. He will inherit pretty much my bank account. He will inherit everything I have just because he's my son. So the power of my car belongs to Parker. But until Parker is old enough and able and mature enough to drive it, Parker won't get my car. I'm not going to give Parker the keys to my car right now because Parker's only four years old. You see what I'm saying? So there are things that God says, these are all truths. It is true that the car belongs to Parker. It is true that the power of life and death is in the tongue. These things are true. But I don't believe that God has given it to everyone because he knows you're too immature or not sorry, you, but we are too immature to use it. I mean, how many times have you said something, cussed somebody out on the road, spoke something to somebody or said something jokingly that if that were to really happen, we'd all be in trouble. (laughs) You see my point. So, again, it's not that it's not true. I believe that it is true. But I don't believe that God has given these gifts to everybody because not everybody is mature enough to use them the way that they're supposed to be used. So anyways, we come back to this. How do we reign? Death reigned because death had the final say. But now Jesus is saying, I want you to reign in life. I want you to reign the same way. I want you to have the final say over your life. I want you to be able to speak life into your world and see things happen. I want you to see everything that's coming into the world and be able to stand at your front door and say that this will not come into my house. I want you to be able to see all the things going on around you and be able to speak life, not just over your house and your family, but speak life over your city. Speak life over your nation. Begin to speak life into the world. Because at the end of the day, if you reign in life, it means that you have the final say over what happens. Now, the trick is this right here. Every time Paul gives us a treasure, he always gives us a key. And I love it. The the treasure is what? Reign in life. But the key is in verse 17. One more time, he says this much more those who receive. And I want to challenge you to go and look up the word receive in the Greek, the tense, the actual tense is a present participle, meaning you didn't receive it one time, you are always constantly receiving it. Every day you're receiving it. Every night you're receiving it. When you go to work, you're still receiving it. When you go home, you're still receiving it. When you go to lunch, you're still receiving it. I could do this all day. But my point is this, no matter what you do, you're constantly, constantly, constantly receiving this. So he says this, those who receive receive, An abundance of grace. Now, some people, I like to think that our our church, we are a grace church because we encourage people that it's not what you did, but it's what Jesus did for you. So everything that God is doing for you is unearned, it's undeserved. And the only way you will get it is if you can't earn it and you can't deserve it. There you go. The only way to be disqualified from something that is unearned is to earn it. So in our church, we tell people, stop trying to earn what God has for you. Stop trying to deserve what God has for you. Instead, realize Jesus did all the hard work so that all you have to do is just receive it. So knowing that, again, it's an abundance of grace. Now, some people would say, well, you know, I, I receive grace every Sunday morning. Well, that's good. But is that really an abundance? Some people say, well, you know, I listen to the, to the word of God twice a week on, on the grace of God, twice a week from preachers who I know preach the grace of God. Yeah, that's great. But is that really an abundance? Now, I'm not here to judge anyone, how much they listen to God's word, how much they don't, how much they read, how much they, we're not here to do that. But my point is this. He says, if you are receiving an abundance of grace, then you've done the first part. And the second part is this, and the gift of righteousness. I was reading a book by a guy. I want to say it was Gene Bailey. Maybe it's on the bookshelf behind me. I can't remember what it is called right now. But anyways, he was talking about In Middle Eastern culture and how to interpret certain things, when it comes to that declaration of, right I'm sorry, when it comes to this gift of being right with God, the word righteousness, again, old English word for in right standing with somebody. Our right standing with God is not based on how good we are or how bad we are. It's based on what Jesus did for us. You have access into God's presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week, not because you deserve it and not because you were good enough for it, but because Jesus said, I will receive all that you have done so that you can receive all that I deserve. He comes to this earth. He lives a perfect, 100% perfect life. Then at the cross, I'm sorry, before the cross in the garden, he had a chance he had a choice. I can either leave this life now and enjoy the perfection, the, the the fruit of all my perfection, but you'll still be left in your own sin and left in your own judgment. So what he does is that in the garden, he makes a choice. In the garden, he says, I'll receive the cup of what everything Matthew Edwards deserves, everything that you deserve. And then what I'll do is I'll give you everything that I deserve. And at the cross, what we saw, in fact, in Isaiah, Isaiah says it like this. We saw him on the cross, but we thought he was suffering for his own sins his own old English, his own trespasses, but it wasn't. It was for our mistakes. So everything Jesus goes through, through the cross, through his passion, everything he goes through, it's not because of what he did, but because of what we did so that for this reason, on this side of the cross, we could enjoy what he deserves. So again, it's not you saying, well, I'm good enough, or I deserve it, or I've done five good things today, so God's going to bless me, or I know I can pray and God's going to hear me because I, I I resisted that temptation, or I didn't do this over here and I wanted to, but I didn't do it, so now I know that if I pray, God's going to hear me. Then you miss the whole point. Being in right standing with God is not based on what you do, it's based on what Jesus did. Your Your, your, your own heart is betraying you even in that moment. It's not what you've done, it's what Jesus did for you. And the, the 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 thing to hear in, in that book that I read by, I think it was Gene Bailey, but the thing to hear even in that book was this, it's not saying, well, you know, let me say it this way. The gift of righteousness is like standing in front of a judge and saying, I know I did something wrong, but what do you say? Receiving that gift of righteousness is like hearing that judge say to you, like hearing that judge say, you are right. You are perfect. You're good. And every day, knowing that you didn't, knowing that you didn't do what you were supposed to do, still hearing God tell you, you are perfect. Right here, receiving that gift of righteousness is, Paul is literally saying, Every day, every moment of your life, stop at some point and just hear God declare over you, you are still perfect. You are still perfect. The blood of Jesus has removed every one of your sins. You are still perfect. Even when I make a mistake, you are still perfect. Even when I I gave into the temptation, you are still perfect because the blood of Jesus has removed every single one of your sins. Now, knowing that, how can you not reign in life? In fact, I'm taking up a lot of time. I can see the timer already. I'm taking up a lot of time. But let's move to this. Look at this in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to know how to reign in life, if you want to know how to do anything, all you have to do is look at Jesus. I'm a firm believer in that. When you look at Jesus, hold on one second. Here we go. Oh, there she goes. I'm sorry. I saw uh, somebody on there. One of my, I think it's one of my coworkers. Anyways, um, sidetrack. All right, let's jump back into it. Sorry. If you want to know how to do anything, in life, all you have to do is look at Jesus. In fact, I'm a firm believer. All you have to do is look at Him. When the disciples were on the boat and they were terrified, the storm is going to kill us. What are we going to do? And they're fighting the storm. They look up and they see Jesus walking on top of the walking on top of the water, walking on top of the storm. And in that moment, what be, what was impossible became possible just because they're looking at Jesus. So whatever seems impossible, my encouragement to our church is always. Just look at Jesus. That's all you have to do. Look at him and you will become like him. In fact, my favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I don't know if you know me, but if you know me, you know that is my hands down favorite verse because it's the verse that brought me into the grace of God to realize transformation will never happen because I'm good, but it will always happen as I keep my eyes on Jesus. That's all you have to do. Look at Jesus and let the Holy Spirit transform you from the inside out. But anyways, all that said to say this, when it comes to reigning in life. God wants you to reign and he wants you to reign like a king. If God wants you to reign, how do you reign? Well, let's look at Jesus in Matthew chapter eight. In fact, not just, we're going to go to Matthew chapter eight, but when you look at the whole book of Matthew, keep in mind, Matthew's gospel was written primarily to the Jews. The Jews were looking for a king. They knew that Messiah would come and they knew that he would come and he would bring his kingdom onto the earth. So what they were looking for was a king. Now, yes, they were looking for a king, but when God brought his son into the world, he didn't put him in a palace. Instead, he put him in a stable. What he's trying to show us is this. Power and authority is not used to make yourself look better. It's used to promote other people and move them up. So right here, we see that Jesus's uh, power and his authority as a king, he uses it to serve others. Now, in Matthew's gospel, what you see is Jesus as a king. That's the whole picture. You're looking at Jesus as a king. In fact, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of four living creatures. He sees a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Those four, yeah. Lion, ox, man, and an eagle. In Revelation, John sees the same four creatures. A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. In the same exact order. Now, when you put the two together, what you see is this. You see the four gospels or the four different perspectives or what we like to say, the four faces of Jesus, so to speak. You're getting four different perspectives of Jesus. Now, we're not going to go into that. That's a story for another time. But my point is this. The very first one mentioned is the lion. The very first gospel mention is the gospel of Matthew. When you look at Matthew, what you're seeing is Jesus coming as a king. Now, Matthew opens up uh, with a little bit about Jesus' birth in that story. And then it goes into the Sermon on the Mount, which lasts about three to four chapters, if I'm not mistaken. You're looking at about three to four chapters. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is coming as a king and he's reinstituting the constitution of the kingdom of God. I know that's a lot of big words, but my point is this. He's bringing in the kingdom, I'm sorry, the constitution of the kingdom of God. Every kingdom has a law. Every kingdom has a constitution. So when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, most of the things Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount are the way that the kingdom of heaven will work. For example, he says this. If a man slaps you, turn to the other cheek. He says, if somebody asks you to do something, go the extra mile. Uh, when someone uses you, when they talk bad about you, when they try to hurt you, they persecute you, don't respond. Instead, pray, do these things, X, Y, and Z. I mean, everything Jesus does, he says, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. I mean, everything Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he's bringing in the constitution of the kingdom of God. When God's kingdom comes on the earth, this is how it will function. But keep in mind, the kingdom of God was suspended because the Jews rejected their king. They rejected their savior. So because they rejected him, the kingdom of God has been suspended. Now, yes, in many ways, we are advancing the kingdom of God in this way. But the kingdom of God is not here. In fact, the kingdom of God is within us. But when Jesus comes back at his second coming, which I believe is very soon, when Jesus comes back, keep in mind that kingdom will no longer be inside of us. Then it will become... It'll, I'm sorry, it'll be on the outside. We'll begin to see the kingdom of God for what it actually is. So uh, until that time, keep in mind, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is depicted as a king. In fact, oh, I apologize. In fact, the first opening miracles that you see Jesus do, um, he, de- he depicts how he is a king. Um, in fact, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 8. But before we do, again, Jesus is depicted as a king. Now, when you look at Jesus as a king, keep in mind, a king doesn't rule or reign by what he does. He rules and reigns by what he says. All right. I want to be very clear about that. He's not, you know, if I'm a king and I, I show this analogy in church, you know, if I'm a king and I want a podium move from one spot to another spot, I don't get up and move the podium from here to there. What I do is I say, I want this podium move from here to there. And the powers that be, the people around me who are serving the king and serving this position, they move the podium from one spot to the next. Likewise, Jesus as a king, he is reigning in life over everything. So that means as a king, he doesn't have to do, he merely has to speak. Now, knowing that, keep in mind, the first miracle that Jesus did is found in the gospel of John, the last gospel, the gospel of John. And the very first miracle that Jesus does, he turns water to wine. But the first miracle that the Bible mentions is not the first miracle that he has done, turning water to wine. In fact, we're about to look at the first miracle that the Bible mentions. And the reason why it's mentioned is because, keep in mind, what he's about to do is he's about to reverse a death sentence. But he's not going to do it by what he does. He's going to do it by what he says. So look at this in Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And I want to encourage you, take a moment real quick. Uh, My parents go to Israel every year. This year, the trip has been canceled due to the outbreak of coronavirus and other things. But keep in mind, into the future, if you are ever interested in going to Israel, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, uh, you should check out my mom's travel tour, Wanda Edwards' travel tours, and uh, go because we went to the Sermon on the Mount. uh, And we were there on the... On the lake where jesus walked on the water and i mean we saw all of it it was an amazing trip so i want to encourage you go to israel and go with monday edwards travel tours you will not be disappointed anyways matthew chapter 8 it says when jesus had come down from the mountain great multitudes followed him and behold a leper came and worshiped him saying lord if you are willing you can make me clean now one more time leprosy is a death sentence there was no cure just like today i don't believe there is a cure leprosy was a death sentence if you had leprosy you're a leper so what happens is this in the old testament god says if anybody has leprosy all right they cannot be in the city and in fact customs showed that if you go into the city and you're a leper all right if you don't cry out unclean if somebody stumbles on you and you're a leper they can stone you until you leave the city or they can stone you until you die but one way or the other a leper is not allowed to touch anybody who doesn't have leprosy because leprosy is contagious by touching, just by touching alone, all right? So again, it's a death sentence. And if you who don't have leprosy touch someone who does, you are declared unclean and you have leprosy. So again, very, not say very similar to what we have today going on in the world, but keep in mind, you're looking at something that is a known death sentence. If you have this, you are going to die. So Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and when he comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, it says in verse 2, Behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You come to verse 3. It says, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, again, I know they are just words on the page, but I want you to be in the moment. Just be in the moment for just a second. Keep in mind, Jesus just gave the law of the kingdom of heaven. He comes down that mountain, which we were there. He comes down that mountain. And as he comes down, all of a sudden, a leper jumps out of nowhere. and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, Jesus reaches out and he touches that man. He reaches out and touches him and says, I am willing. Be cleansed. It wasn't the touch that cleansed the man. It was the words that he spoke that made that man clean. Now, again, how did he reverse a death sentence? By his words by his words, in the same way, I'm telling you, in the same way, received an abundance of God's grace and the gift of righteousness. Every day when you go to work, just say out loud, you know, Heavenly Father, I receive more of your unearned favor. I receive more of your undeserved favor. I'm telling you, when everything's going wrong in life, just tell God, I receive more of your unearned unmerited, undeserved blessings in my life. I receive more of it, even right now. If you're sick, tell God, I receive more of your unearned healing, more of your undeserved healing in my life. Whatever you need from the Lord, just open your mouth and say, I receive more of this unearned, undeserved, whatever you need, and fill in the blank. Because those who are receiving more of that, and they receive that declaration that God is declaring them righteous. God is declaring them perfect. If you can receive both those things, you will reign in life through Jesus as Jesus reigned in life. Let me show you this in Psalm 91, and I'm going to, uh, on the down end of this, I'm going to show you two more places, Psalm 91 and Matthew, and then we'll close with this. Look at this in Psalm 91. I want to say thank you for sticking it out with me. I know we've already been on this for 37 minutes, but I appreciate it. If we were at church, this would just be the beginning. <laughs> I'm joking. Look at this in Psalm 91. Psalm 91, David says, we're just going to look at verse one and verse two, and then we'll skip down to something else. Verse one, David says, he who dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in him I will trust. And I'm just going to hold on for a second. And I want to encourage you in the middle of the coronavirus and everything that's going on. I'm encouraging everyone in our church. Read Psalm 91 once a day, at least just read it once a day. Because Psalm 91 is one of those chapters, it just fills your heart with faith to believe that God will protect you in the middle of everything that's going on. But Psalm 91, notice what he says right here in verse 2. He says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in Him I will trust. When you hear the word refuge and hear the word fortress, you think of protection, all right? Think about the leper for a second. That leper knew that if he moved in the midst of that crowd and if he exposed himself for actually being a leper, that if Jesus didn't heal him, everyone was going to kill him. He knew that everyone would try to stone him because the law said that he could be stoned if he was found in a public place. So he risked everything to get close enough to Jesus. And in that moment when he exposed himself, in a sense, Jesus protected him. Now, in the same way, think about it this way. Right here, David is saying... You are, verse two, one more time. He said, I'll save the Lord. You are my refuge and my fortress, my God, and in you I will trust. I'm telling you in the midst of this, everything that's going on, not just the coronavirus, but everything that's going on in the world. If you put your trust in the Lord, you will never be put to shame. In fact, I think Paul says that in Romans chapter 10. Those who put their trust in the Lord, they will never be put to shame. The point is this. He is here and he is here to protect you. He's here to save you. In fact, when you look at what Jesus did in that story of the leper, All Jesus really had to do was say, be cleansed. But by reaching out and touching him, he was showing everyone, not only am I declaring that this man is clean, that this man is healed, I'm showing you that it's okay for him to be here by touching him. I mean, (laughs) the multitude that followed Jesus was probably close to a couple thousand people and no, no Bible scholars debate that at all, but a couple thousand people and a leper exposes himself in the midst of all those people. Then Jesus reaches out and touches him. And I'm telling you, in a way, what you're looking at is Jesus is protecting this man from anyone who might question, why is this man here? In the same way, what is he saying right here in Psalm 91? Look to the Lord. He wants to protect you. He wants to save you. That's why we started up by saying this. You need to understand what God's heart is. I believe it is vitally important that you understand what God's heart for you is right now in the middle of everything going on. You know, there's a lot of skeptics that look at the Bible and they say, well, you know, God's word is this, God's word is that. Let me say this, go to a good grace-filled Bible study and most of your answers can be answered. (laughs) Most of your questions can be answered. Right now, we don't have the time for that. We're already 40 minutes deep into this and I want to close this here in just a minute. But my point in saying all that is this, God's heart, I'm telling you, it is vitally important that you know, that you know and believe God's heart for you in the midst of everything going on is that he could save you and protect you. Look at this in verse nine, we'll read down from verse nine to 11. Verse 9 says it's because you have made the Lord who is my refuge even the most high your dwelling place. Again there's that word refuge. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all of your ways. Again, it's one of those verses that instills and puts um that just puts faith in puts faith in your heart when you read Psalm 91. The point I'm trying to make is this, in the middle of everything that's going on, don't don't be confused about what God's heart for you is. One of the things I hate the most is when people say things like, well, you know, God's going to get you or God's going to do this. You know, the other day I was talking with somebody and they made a comment about, you know, you think you can do this and get away with it. God is real. He's going to get you back for it. And I thought, my God, what in the world? God isn't interested in trying to get people back. He's more interested in saving you and saving you from all the, I will, I'm, you can fill in the blank. But my point is this, at the cross, Jesus received something. He received something that he didn't deserve. So that right now, in the midst of the coronavirus, in the midst of everything going on, in the middle of everything that's going on in life, in the middle of it, you can know that your heart can be at peace. And you can be reassured that because Jesus received what I deserve, that right now I will get what Jesus deserves in this moment. Let me close with this. In Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25. Let me close with this in Matthew chapter 25. And uh, if you have your Bible or you're following along, you can go ahead and skip to 25, 24. I'm going to share the parable and then we'll close with this story. In Matthew 25, I normally don't like to end on a warning, but (laughs) I'll figure for the sake of this, you know, in this moment, we can do it. It's all good. In Matthew 25, Jesus shares a parable, uh, the parable of the talents, as it's called. Keep in mind, talents uh, were just a currency exchange for them back then. Anyways, Jesus tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who was about to go on a long trip. So he called three of his servants to him. To the first servant, he gave him five talents. He said, here, take this. To the second servant, he gives him two talents. To the third servant, he gives one talent. Then he goes on his long trip. While he's gone, the one who has five talents takes his five. He, Excuse me. Excuse me. I think he I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm looking at the chapter right now. It says, then he received the five traded. There we go. He traded with his five talents. He, in a sense, he gambled with his five talents. And when he gambled, I'm using that word on purpose. When he gambled his five talents, he ended up getting five more back. Great. The second one did the same thing. He gambled his two talents. He made two more. But the one who got the one talent, he went, he dug a hole in the ground. He put his one talent into the ground. He covered it back up and he waited until his master came back. When the master came back, he called all three of the servants and he said, all right, let me know what you did with the talents that I gave you. The one who had the five came to him and said, look, I went and traded with the five you gave me, gambled with the five you gave me, and guess what? I made five more. So the master is excited. He says, great, enter into my joy. You can read the rest of the story for yourself. The one who had the two talents comes and he says, look, you gave me two. I did the same thing that the first one did. I traded with him and I ended up making two more talents. Again, the master says, good, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. You know the story. But then the one who had the one talent comes. And he says something, and I want to read this to you, and I'm going to close with this. I want to read this to you. Um, look at verse 24. It says, then he who had received the one talent came and said this. He said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering, I'm sorry, my mind's jumping, and gathering where you have not scattered. Now, pause for one second. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. I know that you reap where you have not sown, and take where you have not gathered seed. So now look at this. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Now, if you follow the rest of the story, you know that doesn't end well for that one. That one says that, and the master says something. I'll read that in just a second in verse 26, but I want you to see this. The first two never said anything about him being a hard man. The first two took him and you know what they did? They actually risked everything. I use the word gamble on purpose because there was no guarantee that if they traded their talents, they would get it back. There was no guarantee. They took what their master gave them. They risked risked it. They, you know, they gambled on it, essentially. And they ended up getting back twice as much. I'm sorry, they ended up getting back, yeah, ended up getting back twice as much. So they took five and they got 10. He took two and he got four. And the master was happy with that because you, you, you did something with what I gave you. But with the one who only got the one, he said this, I knew you to be a hard man. The first two never said that. He said, I knew you to be a hard man and I knew you to take what you did not do. I knew you to receive what you did not deserve. Now, is that true? In fact, the master says that in verse 26, he says, but his Lord said, I'm sorry, but his Lord answered to that servant and said this, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Now you can read the rest again for yourself, but he says this, and it's an interesting thing. I want to point this out and I'll close. He says, you knew that I was, you knew that I reap where I have not sown. You knew that about me. Let me say this, that one who said that, was he wrong to say you reap where you have not sown? Absolutely not. Now for the sake of time, the types and shadows, let me just show you, the master in the story is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of God the Father. And the servants are a picture of all of us. God has given to everyone what you can handle and what you can do. He's given you something great. He's given you a gift. He's given you a calling. He's given you everything that Jesus did. He's giving you the fruits of what Jesus did for you. He's giving you his favor. He's given you that declaration that you are right in spite, of your, in spite of your sin. He's given us all of this. And in light of all that he's given us right here, is that statement true? That he reaps where he has not sown? Absolutely. Because at the cross, there was a harvest that all of us have sown, all of us. But at the cross, Jesus reaped that harvest that he did not sow. You see, we deserve death. We deserve destruction. We deserve plagues. We deserve famine. We deserve earthquakes and wars. and We deserve all the death and destruction that's in the world. But at the cross, Jesus received the harvest that he did not deserve. So right here in this moment, what he's saying is this. You would have been smarter to just take it and put it in the bank so it could have made more. In a sense, what he's saying is this. Yes, I reap where I have not sown. But it's not that he's a difficult master. It's not saying that at all. What he's saying is I took it so that you wouldn't have to take it. I did the hard part for you so that you wouldn't have to take it. In fact, I share that with our church a lot. This is a parable uh, about the kingdom of heaven. And again, you're looking at the audience he's talking to, but this truth I think is important for us to pull out. His heart for us. And I'll say this and I'll close. If you have the wrong perception of God, it will stop you from doing what you need to do. If you have the wrong perception of God, it'll cause you to, uh, I believe this, it'll cause you to say, you know, I can't go here. I can't go there. I can't do this. I can't do that. I was talking to one guy and he told me that his pastor, had uh, told him, you know, don't come to church. Don't do this. Don't get the rest of us sick. Don't do this. Don't do that. Let me say this. In the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a plague, the last thing that the church needs to do is look like the rest of the world. We need to stand on God's word that tells us by his stripes we are healed. I mean, come on, we need to be a hope and a beacon of light in this world that says, hey, look, prayer still works. The same Jesus that came on this earth and prayed and saw people healed, saw blind eyes open, saw the lame start walking, the same one that raised the dead. I mean, the church, we may not be there now, but my God, we need to make strides to get back to that place. You understand what I'm saying? Is he a hard master? Is he a hard savior? No, he's not difficult at all. He took what we deserve so that we could receive what he deserves. So right now, I know that it gets hard and I know it's a lot going on in the world and I know that life is hard. I'm not gonna pretend like life should be rainbows and unicorns. I'm not saying that at all. Jesus said, I know you'll have problems in this world. And uh, I will point out, this has also been 48 minutes long. I apologize. I don't even go this long on Sundays. But I do wanna say this, in spite of everything that's going on in the world, take heart. Don't be afraid. Take heart. Like I told our church last Sunday, be smart, be wise. (laughs) Don't run headfirst into the plague, but at the same time, you know what? Trust that his heart for you is that he will protect you. Read Psalm 91 this week, but his heart for you is that he will protect you. He will protect you and your family, that he will protect your loved ones. He will take care of you because he loves you. And I want to encourage you, if you need any reminder of the love of God, go back to the church podcast and listen to any of those messages that talks about the love of God specifically. But we talk about the love of God in almost every sermon that we do. But I'm serious. Go back and remind yourself that God loves you. And honestly, I believe that the more the love of God fills your heart, like John said, fear will find the exit door as God's love fills your heart and fills that void where fear once was. So let me pray for you and then I'll let you go. And I want to say thank you for... uh, sticking it out with me. Again, I didn't know that this would be that long. So (laughs) let me pray for you and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for everyone that stuck it out with me and watched this video. I know it was a long one, but again, I just want to say thank you uh, for everyone that's jumped in and joined in. And right now, Father, where everyone is, I ask that you would protect everyone, everyone that's watching this video from the coronavirus. And not just from that, but everything that is coming on into the world, I thank you, Father, that we belong to you, that the blood of Jesus has covered all of us who have bowed the knee to Jesus and said, you are Lord. And Father, as we belong to you, I thank you that you are protecting all of us. You are watching over us. And Father, not for us just to be selfish, but I thank you that everyone, everyone, not just in our church, but everyone who's watching this, that we would become a beacon of light, a beacon of hope and become a source of healing. As Jesus could walk through and people would get healed, may the same happen for your people, even here in the city of Charlotte. So Lord, we thank you for doing what only you could do and being who only you could be in our life. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for watching. Again, I want to say... uh...
0: Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centerscharlotte at gmail.com. Or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in, and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.